You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jaffrey. And this is Zeba Hassan. Um, Uzma, like I, you know, we talked a little bit before the recording started. I am super excited to hear about what's been going on in your week or lessons learned. And I'll talk to you a little bit about my mommy feels. Your mommy feels? That's yes. awesome. Um, I think I want to talk about mental health today. Yes. Um, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, you know, we do talk about, and Zabe, I get this from Zeba, this is what you have taught me so far, is that we have to parent every child differently. Mm-hmm. We may even have to discipline every child differently. So yeah, I do have a child who I think is struggling with mental health issues. And what I found as a parent, you know, and I've taken this for granted as a physician, is it is really hard for parents to get help. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, especially a child who's, you know, preteen, adolescent, teenager, I was, I have to admit, um, pretty judgmental about, you know, and I am for kids who go and shoot up schools and then cite mental illness and whatever. A lot of it is because the parents have so little support, even from the pediatrician's office. Mm-hmm. Let me just tell you, there is not very much help that you can get when it comes to referrals to psychiatrists, to psychologists, and definitely when it comes to inpatient psychiatry. So as you know, a physician to adults primarily, because I don't want to see kids, um, they're just too complicated. Um, when adults are acting in certain ways and they're dangerous to themselves or to others, it, we very easily can institutionalize them or keep them in a hospital. I won't say easily institutionalize, but we can easily hospitalize somebody in a situation like that um, and hold them for at least 48 hours to make sure that they're safe and that they can be released again and that they're, you know, physically healthy, even though they may not be mentally, at least get them set up with those resources so they can pursue those outpatient. But we don't really have that for kids. And so that's what I'm struggling with this week and trying to find ways to help my kid. I feel like on my own. Um, And that's uh, now like Oxford, Michigan makes sense. Now Mm -hmm. Columbine makes sense. It just, you know, I'm getting it because I'm on this side of the experience. So it's sadly been my week. No, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. And, you know, we've talked about this at length. And one of the things and one of the reasons why I went into the profession and the field that I'm in was to really help families kind of to kind of deal with that. And I've, I'm excited to say that we just hired literally yesterday. I just hired somebody specifically gearing towards our teenage population who will be helping support that um, as well, because and she's they're closer to their her age. She is in her um, early to mid 20s. And I'm really excited about this because I feel like she is super, super um, aware of some of those challenges that these kids have to go and you know we can take up an entire podcast about why I think kids are are having these issues and you Mm -hmm. know you and I have talked about this at length I believe it's that social media FOMO culture that these kids are experiencing and unfortunately electronics are kind of given to kids at 
earlier and earlier ages. Um, but maybe we will bring that, maybe we will talk about this at length because it is something and that I'm super passionate about as well. Um, and you know, this kind of leads into my mommy fail, um, a very similar situation. Um, and, and, and the fact that you feel like you do everything that you can, um, and at least I'm, I literally trained to see certain things and certain, um, experiences that kids are going through and I'm still not going to be able to say or do the right things. Right. So part of what our journey is as parents is to your point, parent every child differently, um, recognize the humbleness to know, you know, as we say in the Sufi world, take away the nuffs, like, like really f work on the internal introspection of what we can do for our children and know that there is support out there and know that I'm here for you always. So we will talk offline about that, but I do know, um, and hopefully your soapbox is not going to make me cry or upset or upset today because I can't deal with any more of that bad news. So Isma, <laughs> what is it that we're going to be talking about for our soapbox for today? We are going to talk about Project Nimbus on our soapbox for today. And so basically what's happened is we have talked in the past on soapboxes about the Blue Wolf technology that Israel is using to create a database of Palestinian civilians, not of um, Israeli citizens, but of Palestinian civilians in particular, and how atrocious that is as believers in democracy and civil liberty, like we should not have a database. I mean, what is this Gattaca? So um, a bunch of uh, Project Nimbus, let me give you some background on that, is a contract that was just signed by both um, Google and Amazon with the Israeli military. And it is a one point, over $1.2 billion contract that um, Amazon and Google will receive from the Israeli government, from the Israeli government and military in order to, um, uh, basically what it does is uh, provides kind of the Blue Wolf technology, but pushes it all on the cloud. So it won't just be available um, to Israel. So it's really, really scary that that's happening. I feel like this soapbox is a little bit more empowering because there's something we can do. Amazon and Google employees themselves have stepped up and told their CEOs at risk of their jobs, obviously, because they could face hostile work environments as a result. But they have risen up and said, no, you can't do that because this technology is not being used to bring people together, which was the whole point of social media and the cloud and all of the stuff. And, you know, you and me here on Riverside. This technology should be used to bring people together, not for apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and the violation of civil liberties, and definitely occupation, right? Let's not talk about that. Um, so this is a form of uh, BDS, basically, that they are uh, working for, these employees, and they have created No Tech for Apartheid. And if you go to notechforapartheid.com, you can easily um, sign a petition. And I know some people do not believe petitions do anything, but are you comfortable doing nothing? You know, let's do something. Let's tell the Amazon CEOs and the Google CEOs, uh, Amazon Web Services, that you cannot pursue this contract and you need to cancel it, not pursue Project Nimbus. I would like to do this because Google is a part of our lives. It's on our phones. Amazon, every mom knows, has saved us through the pandemic. I really don't want to boycott Amazon. Please don't make me. Um, so everybody sign this petition and let's put an end to Project Nimbus. That's our soapbox for today. Yeah, girl. Amazon saves my life on a daily basis. So on a daily please, basis. Let's get this done. I don't want to boycott you, Amazon. I know, I know. But We've given you thousands of dollars this year. A month. 
a month. Okay. Let's just be real. It depends on how big your family is. Um, so the, yeah. you know, so we're going to go from the, the, the no tech for apartheid.com to this week's continued discussion on adoption and fostering because Muslim American families have so many questions about the process. I mean, so many, we're getting so many DMS and questions that people are writing for us to ask these lovely guests. Um, there are vital interfaith, interfaith allies in our communities who can help us, including cultivating families whose representatives are here today, Sarah Heather Adam, um, Alam and Amy Bazinski, though she did say that her father-in-law pronounces her last name differently. So we're going to ask her officially how that is pronounced. She, they will be helping us out here today. They're the board members of Cultivating Families. They're equipping, they're equipping communities of faith to care for and foster adopted children. And we are so grateful to have both of them here today. Welcome, Amy and Sarah. Welcome and salam alaikum. Um, we are excited to kick this podcast off and, you know, start shooting a bunch of questions at you guys and hopefully uh, we won't overwhelm anybody and you won't regret coming on Uh, but we'd like to start by asking our guests a little bit about their momming story whatever they're comfortable sharing and their momming philosophy so Amy let's start with you hi thank you so much for for having me I'm 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 honored to be asked to be in the conversation Um, I think my mommying story is uh, day in and day out for 18 years um, and my son is joined our family through adoption uh, he moved into our home two weeks before his second birthday so um so that was 15 years ago um so we signed up to adopt up to three children expecting to get a sibling group and we were matched with our son Um, And we expected to adopt a couple of more children a little bit later because we were open to a bigger family. Um, But as it turned out, we found out very quickly within a month or so that um, we probably got the work of three children in one little boy. (laughs) So um, he has been a joy beyond joys and he has been a challenge beyond challenges um but i've loved every minute of everything i've learned and everything that he's taught me that's wonderful thank you so much for sharing that and you know i can say as a mom of four like after one i was like i get why people stop at one this is really hard And I meant to stop at one too, but it just, I couldn't figure out the whole birth control situation. So yeah, go fig. You don't pay attention in all classes in medical school. Let me just put it that way. Um, so Sarah, why don't you share a little bit about your momming story and your momming philosophy as well for our audience? Sure. Uh, interestingly enough, I was the type of person who had never, you know, in my younger years, never imagined myself pregnant, but I always knew I would have a family. So when we started, uh, the process of wanting to build a family and render roadblocks, it was almost, uh, you know, see, I knew this already kind of deal. But we struggled with infertility and then decided that we were going to go the IVF route. That was a very painful experience. We went through two cycles of in vitro fertilization and neither of them worked, obviously. Uh, at that point, I was not going to put up with that anymore. And I told my husband at the time that this is it. I mean, if we have failed with two cycles, there's no point in trying any further. Let's move to adoption. 
So we decided to move to adoption, international adoption, and we thought we'll go to Azerbaijan. Well, lo and behold, two we- a week after we made that decision, Azerbaijan's process shut down because of corruption. So then we had by then uh, selected an agency to move forward with, and they guided us to move to Kazakhstan, which was a Muslim country and not Pakistan. And uh, we could still have somewhat of a connection from the Muslim as well as, um, you know, the rest of the world perspective and adoption would be finalized in the country and all of those details. So three weeks into that, we found out that I wasn't a, we knew that I wasn't a citizen yet, but because I wasn't a citizen yet, we would have to do the process twice, basically, as if the child was going to come to the U.S. and also go to Pakistan to be adopted. And that double work was something that uh, we were not prepared to deal with. About that time, my uh, ex-husband saw an article on Ethi Foundation and he was like, what are we do- doing going to Kazakhstan? We need to be going here. So we shifted gears again and decided to go to Pakistan and contacted ET. Less than six months after we mobilized our adoption journey, we were placed with our daughter, Noor. And because she was meant to come here is why we ran into all of those roadblocks, which I didn't understand at the time. You know, I'm, I'm a high achiever. You know, I, I got everything done right. Why is it happening to me kind of people? And there was a lot of learning and humility for me in this mommying journey. So um, I think what sums up the mommying journey for me is um, a quote, actually, my friends and I were on online chat just before I went to Pakistan to adopt my daughter, and one of them said, oh, I'm going to go make tea for my family. Uh, when your daughter grows up, she can make tea for you. And I was like, no, I'm not getting my daughter to make tea. I'm getting her to change the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then when Noor was six, she said, mommy, you keep changing the world to yourself. Just let me be a kid. So I had apparently put so much pressure on her. That's six, poor thing, bless her. That she had to remind me that she was still a kid and I didn't need to load her up that much. So my burden of expectations was heavy for her to carry. Yeah, it was too much. And that, But that's such a blessing that one, you created space for her to be able to articulate and tell you because a lot of kids wouldn't be able to do that. So that is is a great mommy moment. So I want you to feel that. And, you know, we always say it's never the journey forward, right? You always look back and see what are the steps that got us here. And that's ultimately where we're supposed to be. So I love that. And I love that Noor, she probably will be changing the world one day, just maybe not as quickly as you want her to mama, but she will be doing it nonetheless, inshallah. I'm so, so excited. But, you know, can you guys talk a little bit about um, cultivating families? What is it about? And how did you, the two of you meet each other in this journey? Because I, I, I already can tell the chemistry between the two of you. Well, Amy is the founder of Cultivating Families. So I think the story starts with her and I joined along the way. I, I saw God at work so powerfully uh, through the adoption of our son, um, mainly, I guess, the match the personality of my husband and me and my son and all of us coming together to create a family um, was amazing to me. And it wasn't just amazing in a like a romantic, you know, kind of a way. 
I realized at that time that um, we had to do a ton of work to get to that point, a ton. Um, but at the same time that we had to do all of that paperwork, jump through all of those hoops, um, adjust like, like Sarah did um, in all of her different paths towards adoption, flexibility, um, it was a lot of work. At the same time, we had to let go and let others do their part um, and let go and, and let God do God's part. Um, so it was this kind of this balance of all that we had to do and all that we had to let go of. I wanted to do something that would make it easier for those coming behind us to, to just become educated and aware and understand that they will, they're not alone. Um, and that if they want to bring children into their family, into their communities in this way, um, we can help them along that path. And then it also grew out of my own experience with my family and the support that I needed. I needed to surround myself with others. And I, I, I knew that I was at risk of becoming isolated. And so I began on the other end of that starting to do things like support groups for families so that they can remain successful when the children are in their homes. And then kind of branching out from there, um, helping communities of faith understand what foster care is, that it's not the children's fault, and what, what life is like for the families and how much they need to be welcome in their faith community. Um, and out of all of that and the desire for all those things, we just began developing what became a nonprofit to offer programs and activities that do these things. I set out originally to cast a wider net and to engage more churches. There were only a few churches that were really good at adoption and foster care ministry or education and awareness. And so I originally set out to equip a lot more churches to do that. Um, and that changed very quickly. I met Sarah, and we both said, hey, everybody can do this. And so we just cast an even wider net um, to, to make the organization interfaith and to help everyone with a heart for children. Sarah, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I was so involved in the story, I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, it sounds like you sent Amy an email and that's kind of how you guys were introduced. And, and like they say, the rest is history, but how did you guys um, get in contact with each other and what compelled you to write that email? Well, it's interesting that I was introduced to the Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston in about March, April of 2016, 14, 2014 timeframe. Yes. And uh, I went to meet their director of interfaith relations, and uh, she said, you're working on adoption and foster care? And I said, yes, I wanted to see if there were other faith communities working on this, So because there was nothing, no infrastructure in the Muslim community in the Houston area at the time. And I was just starting to, you know, go public with my desire to create awareness. Prior to that, I had started the Pakistan Adoption Group when I adopted my daughter and realized that there was no documented process anywhere. So I started the Pakistan Adoption Yahoo Group 
as I was going through my adoption and I ended up staying in Pakistan for eight months. So I learned a lot and I didn't want it to go to waste. So I kept helping people just privately on my own through that support group. And it was time to take that after 10 years to a larger platform. And that's where I was in wanting to reach out and connect with other people through the interfaith process. So the director of interfaith relations at Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston said, oh, there was a lady here two weeks ago talking about similar, very similar things. You guys should talk to each other. Here's her card. And she was done with me and I was done with her and I was on to Amy. So I sent her an email after that. Say, hey, I was referred to you and, you know, would you like to meet? Let's talk. So we ended up meeting for lunch and we were both talking at the same time because we were so excited to find each other. Sarah, this is more directed towards you, but I'm sure that, um, Amy, you can speak to this as well. But, you know, because you saw that nothing existed in the Muslim community, can you talk to us some, uh, some, with some details about the misconceptions that Muslims have about adoption and foster care and why in the past Muslim agencies that have pursued this have failed? Well, the Muslim agencies that have pursued that have failed is something that I will have to address in much more detail secondarily. But the first piece of this puzzle is that adoption and foster care is still an enigma for the Muslim community. There's a lot of misperceptions about, you know, the fact that... Um, Actually, the first time I did a public session in October of 2014, I had started my presentation and this lady in the back stood up and said, you are spreading misinformation. Islam does not allow adoption. And she stomped off. And I was like, well, thank you for coming. She come. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> just to say she, that. <laughs> she had to have her last word. And, you know, once she left, I went into details of addressing that question. But unfortunately, she wasn't willing to listen. But the first point that comes to my mind, even before anything else, is Prophet Muhammad was born an orphan. Through him and his life, Allah taught us the importance of adoption and foster care. If there was nobody to foster him as a baby, he was born an orphan. His mother passed away when he was six. His grandfather passed away when he was eight. Can you imagine any other plight for the leader of a community who grew up in a circumstance like this? There isn't one, right? So if we can be Muslim and deny that there is no concept of adoption and foster care in Islam, it's hard for me to believe that we are Muslim when we say that. The issue there is that Islam prohibits against what's called tabanni, the change of parentage. So once you are wanting to take care of an orphan, there's a lot of evidence both in the Quran and in Hadith where uh, Muslims are very much encouraged to take care of the orphan, to provide for the orphan, to love an orphan the way you would your own child. However, the nuance that people don't want to process is that you're supposed to keep it in the open. Keep transparency. The child needs to know that they're adopted. The community needs to know that they're adopted or, you know, that they're uh, you're serving as a guardian rather than a biological parent. So long as the biological myth is not perpetuated, there is no issue with adoption. The Western concept of adoption means that the, there is a change of parental name. 
And that's the issue Islam has with the Western concept of adoption, not that Islam prohibits adoption. So that's the first thing. The second argument that comes up is, well, if it is um, a child that is not born from you, it, he or she would not be madam to either you or your partner or your husband, you know. If you're the mom, then you, the dad would not be madam to the baby. So in the case of those situations, there are a lot of ways that this issue can be resolved through induced lactation or if if you have a daughter and the husband's sister uh, breastfeeds that daughter, then that madam relationship can be established. Or if in some cases, I mean, I know of a, a situation where Interestingly enough, this family adopted two girls, and both times her sister-in-law was having her own children, and the same sister breastfed both their girls. So, mashallah, they were madam uh, to her husband. And if the boy, if it's a boy, then he's not going to be madam to the mom. Well, there is the concept of induced lactation. There are ways through herbs and medication that you can induce, the mom can induce lactation and uh, satisfy the madam requirement. And I think the third one is the inheritance issue that they say, that, oh, if you have a child that's adopted, you cannot leave your, um, you know, your assets to the child. Well, you can if you put it in your will during your life, but not if you pass away without um, allocating any of that to the child. So those are resistance points. I don't even want to call them myths because they are just fabricated resistance points. I know you said there's a lot of detail involved on the failure of Muslim agent, uh, adoption agencies, but if you could just touch on generally why they need support, you know, from other interfaces. The biggest thing is we don't have a body of knowledge or a group of people who have specialized in this uh, field. So when we uh, started New Star Kafala and were looking for Muslim social workers, that was a harrowing task to find social workers who were of Muslim origin and trained in adoption to facilitate those processes. So we had to lean on people who already had the established systems. And in fact, the only way New Star Kafala could come into being is by essentially taking an existing agency that had that knowledge and infrastructure and then converting that into a Muslim agency because had we tried to develop it from scratch, it would have failed before it started. There was no expertise. Yeah, and I think that interfaith alliance is something that Zeba and I are really committed to in the work that we do outside of Bombing While Muslim. And, you know, you could consider that a resistance point too in our community where, you know, why should we work with other people? And where I am, uh, there's only one agency that uh, permits, say, foster care to refugee minors. And they happen to be religiously affiliated. But they're looking for Muslim families. So it's like, it's actually helpful to ally with them to help them do their work because their agenda is not to convert all of these refugee minors. Their agenda is to get those Muslim minors with Muslim families. So we have to work together as teams in this foster care and adoption process um, as a community. In the greater Houston area, the only agency that is, uh, you know, authorized to place those children is Catholic Charities. And, you know, Muslims are going to go up in arms and say, well, how come Catholic Charities is taking our kids? No, Catholic Charities is trying to place those kids in Muslim homes. If the Muslim community does not open their homes, 
where do you expect these children to go and how dare you then have a problem with them being placed in a non-Muslim home because you refuse to open your door. So, yeah. Every time you point a finger out, you have three pointing back at you. How do you respond to people that are saying, you know, this is just an extension of missionary work and this is why you're doing this? So, you know, and, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but I, I would imagine that is what people are thinking. Um, and I just want to throw it out there um, just so that you can speak to it um, with your own voice. Sure. Thank you. And I appreciate the way that you um, approached the question. Um, for me, that's one of the reasons I started, even uh, when my focus was casting a wider net to, to get more churches involved. That very point about this being about the children and what the children need and the community that needs to accept and care for the children, um, and that very point that we don't do this to proselytize, we do this to care for the children. So there's even a, a part of Christianity where um, that was important to me, to cast a wider net there. And that's what was such a natural fit when Sarah came along and we had that conversation is that's what I was doing anyway. It was just with a smaller group of communities of faith Let's do this in a bigger way. You know, there's a lot of Christian organizations that do this, and they do it well, but they are a little bit more closed. And sometimes if you dig down deep into their mission and vision and reason for existing, some of those organizations are about uh, converting people to Christianity. Um, that's not who we are. That's not what we're about at Cultivating Families. Um, However, we are, it is super important to us that children's spiritual nurturing is as important as their physical, mental, social, and emotional nurturing. We believe that the children need spiritual nurturing to become whole little human beings um, and then grown human beings. That's just an important piece of who we are. Uh, and so that's why we want to equip multiple communities of faith so that they're all equipped and ready and able to welcome the children and able to teach them and walk alongside them and, and help them grow in their faith. So we often get a lot of frustrated Muslim families who are like upset. Like I can't, once you decide, like you said, Sarah, I want to start adopting. I'm putting everything in. I'm doing all of this stuff, you know, and it doesn't necessarily happen. Even if we cross all our T's, dot our I's, it doesn't happen the way that we want it to happen. And for people that are, are interested and in starting to think about like whether they want to do foster care or starting the adoption process, can um, either of you, but specifically you, Sarah, um, explain the general process about like getting licensed um, to either foster or adopt um, for our audience? Because our hopes is through this, this month-long series that we're, we're raising awareness and that more people are going to want to be a part of this process. Sure. So when we talk about adoption or foster care, um, actually, and one lady wrote to me, oh, please don't give up. This is a journey of faith. And I was like, only now am I beginning to absorb that and have faith instead of forcing the outcomes. 
So by quitting the agency of Christian World Adoptions, I'm not giving up on adoption. I'm just giving up on this path, this trajectory, but I am continuing on my journey the way God is leading me. In terms of how do you go about the process, try not to do things the way I did. Switch several countries before you realize that this is not the path chosen for you. But some of these things are learned through trial and error. You know, we think we want something, but God, Allah, has a better plan. And we need to come to that plan with humility so that at the end of the day, we can be part of the plan that he has for us instead of insisting on our way of doing things. So the first thing is you have to do, like Amy mentioned, a lot of inner work before taking a step on this journey because... You may think that, hey, I am this many years old, I've been married this many years, it's time for me to start a family. Well, guess what? That's not working. (laughs) So just the humility of acknowledging that that's not working and let's take a look at different options is the first step. Cultivating Families as an organization has developed uh, an adoption and foster care decision course, which is a three-week process where we talk about several aspects of this decision. So we initially talk about the inner work, the joys and challenges of adoption and foster care. What does it entail? What do we need to be prepared for emotionally? Then we talk about the physical and logistical pieces of the puzzle where, you know, how much is it going to cost? If I choose this path, what is the expected time frame? Who are the agencies I need to get approval from? All of those details are covered in our second session. And the third session is, you know, we talk about the ways people can, who care about children, but they come to realize that they cannot bring a child into their home. They still can help in a lot of different ways. So we emphasize that there is a thing, there is something you can do, even if you can't bring a child into your home. And it's important to recognize the full spectrum of the um, ways you can help a child, whether with them being placed in your home or not. Note, I would like to ask, you know, what are some of the um, resources that Cultivating Families offers to um, adoptive families? Something I thought of while while Sarah was talking, and that is um, people talk about this process and how cumbersome it can be. But I like to remind people to to stop and think, if you had a child that is your own child and something happened in your life um, and you were unable to keep that child for whatever reason, how much red tape would you want somebody else to go through to make sure that they are okay and safe for that child? And so when you you keep that in mind, that this is a child, it it is somebody's child to begin with, um, and we need to be very, very careful about who takes the child in. Um, So that kind kind of change your perspective on all of that red tape and that hard process, it's necessary. It's a necessary piece. Um, What Cultivating Families offers, Sarah described the decisions course I hope that it can become a model that can happen anywhere. Our current course has everything, a big portion of it is a lot of local information. 
We have information about the local child placing agencies. We have local experts that come and speak. And the important piece of that is we want people to meet real people nearby because that's the beginning of not becoming isolated in the end. It's the beginning of knowing that there are resources and there are resources nearby. Um, again, I hope that we can take that model and replicate it um, in other areas of the country or even other areas of our state. Um, <clears throat> but other than that, when not everyone is called to take these children into their home 24 seven. Uh, some are called to do it temporarily in their homes, and that would be foster care. Some are called to do it permanently for the rest of your life. Um, and others are called to come alongside those families that do take the kids in and help in any way, shape, or form that they can help. And Cultivating Families has a lot of resources on, on all of those ways. Um, one is simply praying. Right now we have a, a Christian prayer initiative. We have a companion piece to that, which is a Jewish uh, prayer initiative. And we're diligently working on our Muslim version of <laughs> praying with the for the children and for the families. But everything from simply praying to donating items and physical things that are needed to help the children and the families to things that take a lot more time and energy and passion, which might be being a child advocate, which advocates for the children in court, um, or even being a mentor or a tutor or, or hosting a meal train for the family. The list goes on and on. And it might be, there's, there are things that individuals can do, and there are things that communities of faith can do, right? So communities of faith can open up their space and offer the, the room and the, maybe the coffee and, and water for a support group to take place. And that's where the families can come together and be encouraged by one another. And that is a huge help for these families. Sometimes you could take that even a step further and offer childcare while the support group is happening so that the parents get that time to talk with each other. Um, and then also opening a congregation's doors to um, teach and help help people understand trauma-informed parenting or trauma-informed care, which can also transition to teaching child care workers and volunteers in the faith community. So I, I could go on and on and on about the millions of ways that, that you can help a child whether you bring the child into your home or not. Yeah, and I, I believe a lot of those non-foster, non-adoptive roles can be found on Cultivating Families. Have that link definitely in our show notes. Um, but um, Sarah, given your international experience, I, I would love for you to get our audience, particularly our Muslim audience, um, who we know, yeah, you know, orphanages abroad, are hit or miss, right? They're not always the best places. But can we talk about institutionalized settings for children and how uh, how putting them with a family, like putting them in a family environment is so critical versus relying on these institutional settings to do the job that we're just, you know, quote unquote, not strong enough to do? Well, when a child 
is born and the first few months and years of their developmental life, they learn how to connect with people through the interaction with their primary caregivers. The mother in a traditional setting is the primary caregiver for a child and that answers every call and every need of the child in its early you know very very early formative time so when a child is in an institution he or she is lying in a crib and there are 20 other cribs along the same wall and there's only one caregiver that can attend to the needs of the child unfortunately the children don't get their needs met because physically, it's physically impossible for one person to care for 20 kids at the same time. She's going to have to schedule things. She's going to have to let some of those kids cry. And, you know, the hardest part is when you go into an orphanage and it's quiet. This baby is in the room and it's quiet. Nobody's making sound. Nobody's crying. Nobody's laughing. Because... The children, unfortunately, even at a very young age, even at a few months old, learn that nobody's coming when they make that call, distress call. And they learn not to waste their breath on it. And they shut down their emotional and neurological uh, connection pieces, if synapses, do not develop because there is no connection. You know, yes, the lady is doing her best job to take care of the physical needs of the children, but there's no eye contact, there's no skin-to-skin contact, there is no babbling and, you know, emotional connection, if you would. So the child's emotional and social, uh, social emotional development is deeply curtailed in an institutional setting. And as they grow in that setting, they develop a lot of the challenges that later on become diagnoses you know I I remember when I was going to Pakistan and I talked to a colleague of mine they had adopted a little boy at 18 months from Romania and unfortunately during those 18 months that child had been so severely neglected that he never could develop into a fully actualized person you know, I remember having this conversation with Paul. And it was Noor was no when I was going to go back for Hannah, and Noor was about two. I was complaining about how my two-year-old acts like a teenager, and he said it's worse when your teenager acts like a two-year-old. And that's how I realized what he was talking about. I thought he was just making a smart comment, but then he said no. Sometimes he is so arrest. It is arrested development emotionally. He cannot, even though he has been in a family, in a loving family since the age of 18 months, he still could not conduct himself as a normal, emotionally connected human being. That is really painful. And it just means that more of us need to step forward and do something about it. You know, we can talk about, you know, oh, these are the changes that we need to make so there's not all of these, you know, abandoned babies. They're not conceived in the first place. But the fact is that I think since you know, time immemorial, that's not going to stop. So it is taking care of the children that are here right now, regardless of whatever circumstances brought them into being, they are still God's creation. And it's still our responsibility to step forward and do something, mm-hmm. anything. And, and so I, it's not the child's fault. You know, people sometimes say, oh, if a child was born out of wedlock, I don't want an illegitimate child in my home. And I was like, look, it's nothing to do with the child. The child did not ask to be born. You cannot punish the child for the sins of others. If they have done something wrong in 
making a bad choice and also then making a choice to abandon a child, it is still better than killing a child. The child has a chance at life. Somebody else can give her a home, a family, the love that they need to nurture and develop into a, you know, in a wonderful human being. So it's not to say that we are here to judge. Our job is not to judge. Our job is to love and nurture those children. Exactly. And as we heard from Amy even earlier, you can do something as complex as like, let's get certified and become a foster family to something as simple as I'm going to go and help babysit at a support support group for families that need that support. So, you know, there's a huge gamut of support that we can provide. Um, and, and like you said, these children did not ask to be born, but they're here and it's, uh, and they are the future. I fundamentally believe the kids are the future and it's our job as all of us, as this collective community to help raise all these children. So we, re- we really um, appreciate all the good work that you two are doing. And I know we're going to have all this stuff in our, our show notes and, and hopefully, you you know, there'll be more cultivating families in a variety of states. I know we could use one here in the Virginia area. So thank you guys for that good work. And, you know, not that I'm trying to make light of the situation, but in order to light up the situation, we do um, a segment called a rapid fire where I'm going to, we're going to add a little bit extra time, I hope, on our our, our time because we have two people. But we're going to start with you um, and we're going to put a minute on the clock and then we'll go to Sarah. So Amy, um, we always, start off with this question is what is one of your favorite books or a book you're currently reading I've an author called Kristen Hanna I love it's- her so Sarah that same question goes to you what is a, one of your favorite books or a book that you're currently reading well uh, the book that I keep going back to is Articulations from Jeff Brown mm. it's on love and acceptance and healing. So this is my last question. You know, if you guys close your eyes and you're trying to transport yourself to uh, your happy place, what does that look like for you, Amy? Oh, uh, mine is my back porch and my backyard. <laughs> Sarah, what what is your happy place? Uh, it depends. <laughs> but it is Depends probably the moment. it is probably at the top of a lighthouse. Oh, I love lighthouses because yes, I believe bumps. you know my vision is to be the lighthouse in this life. Yes, I love to that. be the source of constant guiding light that helps people, uh, you know, to success. Well, thank you both for Hello. sharing um, your expertise and experiences and information about cultivating families, which I think is probably a model that we should all have, like Zepa mm-hmm. said, in every state. And we wish you the best of luck. And if we can ever be of any assistance in getting those state chapters out or supporting them, we're here for you. We're here for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would love to hear back from you later or talk to you more about Mm -hmm. um, the organization on future podcasts so thanks so much for joining us guys thank you thank you thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show, as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice, because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.